Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Hi there, and welcome back to City Talks by Ford, conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today, and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, sustainability advisor, speaker, and co-author of Net Positive. On today's episode, we're exploring the differences between the traditional and the new world of mobility. Joining us to discuss this is CEO of the Shared Use Mobility Center, Benjamin De La Pena, who we know as Benji. Benji has served as Chief of Strategy and Innovation for the Seattle Department of Transportation, and he also writes and curates the newsletter Makeshift Mobility, which highlights informal innovations in transportation. In today's conversation, we explore the biggest innovations in the new and exciting mobility landscape. Welcome, Benji. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're going to talk today about shared-use mobility. Now, that sounds kind of like a logical phrase, but maybe we can just start quickly with some definitions. What is shared use mobility and micro mobility? We'll start with shared mobility, right? Shared mobility is shared trips and shared journeys on shared vehicles and any component of that. So let's say you have a zip car or a car rental. That's a shared vehicle because you don't own it and it's not exclusive for your use. Or you get on a bus for public transportation or a train. That's a shared vehicle and a shared journey or all going the same direction. Or it could be a micromobility electric kick scooter that you have a membership to, you use it, and you go to other places, you drop it off, other people can use it. That's really helpful, actually, because I was just picturing kind of Uber and Lyft and forgot buses, which is silly, but that makes sense. So basically, there are places where we're sharing resources, so it's probably more efficient in general, right, for getting, Absolutely. getting people around. So the other term that I was, uh, I'm supposed to ask you about is multimodality. Talk to me about how those are being used to with traditional technologies like scooters and public transportation. Well, modality is just the mode that we travel, right? How do we travel? What do we use? And so to be multimodal means that you use different kinds of modes to do whatever it is that you need to do in the day. The best way is to contrast that with what is prevalent, which is you own a car and you drive everywhere. Whether it's 50 miles away or three miles away or one mile away, you get in your two-ton vehicle burn fossil fuels to get wherever you need to go. And multimodality just means that, you know, you use an appropriate vehicle. If you can walk there, you can walk there. If you can bike there, you bike there. Or you might want to take a train, get off at the station and catch a shuttle or use a shared bike to get to where you want to go. Yeah, it sounds like that would be great if you could take a train and then have something there when you get there like a bike. I saw on your site that, you know, on your organization that you're tracking bike and scooter regulations around the world. What are you guys finding? Is something changing? Is it getting better, easier, safer? It is getting better. First of all, there were none, right? So around shared micromobility particularly. And so there's a lot has emerged over the last, I would say, two decades, right? But mostly in the last five years or so, especially with the emergence of the dockless bike shares and the kick scooters. And it's shifting from governments first thinking that it was something they needed to regulate and make sure it doesn't get into the wrong places to thinking about, well, how does this actually augment our transportation system? How do we make it more equitable? How do we make it more accessible? Got it. 
So I remember a few years ago, there was kind of a rush of startups in this space, right? In the There was, I think, a few from China and there was in some cities around the world, there was just this incredible extra number of bikes, right? And they're getting dropped off everywhere. There were piles of them. Has that gotten better? Is there more control over the system now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because it's very visible to see bikes that are being piled up in places. And there was a glut really uh, led by a lot of Chinese investment in Chinese companies that since has balanced off. In fact, those two starter companies, Ofo and Mobike, have disappeared. And of course, you take that and you think about the waste that actually happens in the car industry. And we never get to see the picture of used cars and all of that. But that happens too, except that this was a new thing. It was very visible. There's still a lot of startup energy in all of these new modes because what basically has changed is your access to them. The biggest thing that has happened in transportation is really the smartphone because you open it up and then you will know, oh, what are my ways to get around? First of all, you have a map. Then you can figure out ways to get somewhere. Whereas it used to be either you drove there or you asked around about whether there was a bus route to get there. And now there's a map and it gives you all of these options. The startup churn is still happening. There's still a lot of opportunity. This is basically a very new value chain, if you want to put it that way. And so people are trying to take their place in that emerging value chain or that emerging service stack. Yeah. So I imagine there's a lot of service needs, you know, software apps to try to kind of combine all these different modes, right? Different. You've got a city providing a bus. You've got a startup providing a bike. You've got, you know, sponsored city bikes in New York. You've got all these different players, right? So let's step back to kind of away from the micro to just the whole shared mobility category. What are some of the factors that are leading to a shift in behaviors? Are we seeing more shared use in cities? Are people shifting, especially now during the pandemic? Are they going back to their own cars? What's what's kind of happening in the trends? Well, everything dropped during the early days of the pandemic. And to be clear, we're still in the pandemic, right? But everything dropped and there was an increase in micromobility use, the shared bike use, because it was solo ride in places where it was available, you could get there on a shared bike. There was also increases in the sales of e-bikes. In fact, in terms of electric vehicles, right? E-bikes are the biggest seller globally versus all other electric vehicles. So there is that growing. And, and once you've tasted it, you've tried it, then there's more people trying to use it than the stats that came from the National Association of Bike Share of NABSA. The stats were that I think at least a third of all of the riders from the year 2020 on bike shares were new riders, people who were trying it out. So I think there's a growing sense of this being available. In the US, we were seeing in both the millennials and Gen Z, just kind of this wanting other options rather than having to own and drive a car. A lot of that could be economics. A lot of it could be that their freedom is coming from the phone. And so there's growth in this area. There's growth. There's understanding of uh, there are many ways to get around it. There's also the very existential threat, threat of the climate crisis and right. How do you lower your own carbon footprint? And I think this is making all of this more available. Congestion also is helping us think about right. Are there other ways to get around more efficiently. That doesn't detract from cars and the buying of cars, but it also it's showing people that there are many, many other options if they are made available in cities. Well, it's interesting you said that the younger ones, the Gen Zs, they are kind of more open to these things. And what you said about the phone gives them freedom. I had that exact conversation with my 18-year-old when he was kind of in no rush to get a driver's license. He said, I have the phone. Phone takes me anywhere in the world. It was such a different perspective. You know, they don't feel kind of locked down sitting in their room looking at technology. They feel like it opens up 
the whole world. And there's a little bit of, well, you'll drive me around. I'm like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. So why don't you get your own license? Yeah. yeah. Did you say there's more e-bikes than EVs than, than cars have been are selling? In terms of volume per unit sales, yes. Wow. They are globally, they are selling faster. And are the like with the batteries and the EVs, are the prices coming down fast? I mean, initially they were pretty expensive. Yes. In the US, right? The infrastructure bill, the IIJA has tax rebates for at least up to $900. So the prices will go down. It's set at a limit, I think, for bikes have to be $3,000 or $4,000 or below. But it's certainly growing. And outside of the US too, the the small electric motor is driving a lot of change. So if you go to India, India now has a million electric cycle rickshaws. That's three times the number of electric buses in China. And it's growing at an astounding rate of 11,000, I think, per month. And these are cycle rickshaws that have been converted simply by adding an electric motor to it, or they're bought out of store, right? Or could be an adaptation with a swappable battery. So there's a lot of growth that's going on in this segment and we don't track it enough to see it. There's a lot of attention on bigger name companies and what they're doing, but on the ground, there's a lot of growth, rapid growth and adaptation that's going on. I mean, you hope that the electric batteries will replace combustion engines so that you know pollution gets better, but making rickshaws electric, you know, it was human power before, but I would imagine they're able to go further and faster and can compete more with a taxi or something like that, that with the battery, right? They can last longer with the pedaling because it's got to be pretty tiring. So it seems like they can go faster. They're a lot less tired. The auto rickshaws are also converting. India is actively encouraging the shift of three wheelers to electric. And you've got a whole ton of startups, both from the manufacturing side and local kind of supply chain side, encouraging that shift. That's great. So I noticed, you know, organization also, I mean, you know, this podcast is City Talk, so we talk mainly about city transportation, but sometimes it's it's interesting to compare it to rural and, and small towns. And you have a focus on, you know, transportation needs in those, you know, less dense populations. What's the difference? I mean, is the, does the micromobility work with those distances? It depends. Of course, it doesn't all the time, right? Let me shift and not talk about micromobility. Let's talk about electric vehicles. One of the communities we're working with in California as part of the California Air Resources Board's clean mobility options. And that program is really to help communities who are underserved or historically neglected try some innovations in shared mobility. And the things we're learning from the communities, right, is like if you're going to shift to EV and you're in a Native American reservation where the daily trip is 60 to 90 miles, what kind of charging infrastructure would you need yeah, it's not going to cut it to just have oh a gas station here, a charging infrastructure there. So there's a very different mix that happens. Also, when it comes to micromobility and, and shared micromobility, it works in denser places. In less dense places, maybe it's the shuttle that you use, right? And so there's very interesting experimentation on libraries providing shuttle services as part of their programs. So I don't know if, if it answers your question of what are we learning. I think that thing we're learning is there's a lot of experimentation going on and a lot of communities and transit agencies and governments willing to try things out because the categories are breaking down. That's interesting. I mean, we, you know, you talk about needing the infrastructure for charging. I mean, we need that to hit the scale of EV adoption that the auto companies are predicting or hoping for. I mean, they've all committed, right? Most of them to being all EVs. So we better build out infrastructure so you can buy an EV and go longer distances than, you know, my EV has a 250 mile, right? But if we need a longer trip, we have to bring the hybrid out. We just can't find the charging stations yet. 
what's interesting though is that if you we worry about the 250 mile trip but that's a tiny tiny segment of the daily trips we have on average like 60 percent of our trips are under three miles right and of that 60 percent of three miles under 40 percent of that are under a mile yeah so that's a bike right there you don't need a car right so that's kind of the area that you go yeah, you don't need a car. You could have an electric bike. You have an electric cargo bike or a scooter. And that's where I think it, it can really make a difference. So how are all these these modes kind of interacting? How, how are we integrating buses, trains, cars with other sh- new shared mobility with the micro? How's that happening? Well, transit agencies are realizing that we release current research right on through TCRP that it really is helpful to have last mile connections so that you expand the accessible shed for bus services. If you had uh, shared bikes for shared scooters when you get off at the bus station or the bus stop, there's a lot of exploration on mobility hubs. And that's the idea of all of the shared usage are available in a singular place that if you needed to, you could get off a bus and get a, a bike or there's a P2P car sharing that's available or standard car rental that's available, or there's a delivery locker that's there that you can pick up whatever you had delivered to whatever e-commerce site that you ordered from. So the idea of nodes in the network where all of these options are available and making that uh, both visible and accessible is gaining traction. Well, it's interesting you talk about going to pick up packages because there's always the challenge in the delivery world of the last mile, right? How do you do that? How do you get stuff to people quickly? It sounds like there's some movement or some ability to put the last mile on us. Like we, we come and get it, which is more efficient, but it, it kind of reminds me of we're kind of checking out our own groceries now. Like things keep on getting put on us individually as consumers. And, but this one sounds like it might be a good thing, right? So you don't have as many Amazon trucks driving around a neighborhood if people are able to go to the hub and pick up their own. Yeah. And the research that the Urban Freight Lab has shown, right, is the problem is the last 50 feet for the delivery people. So when they come and you can't access the door to get to the mailroom drop, that takes time. And so there's a lot of efficiencies that you can gain if the locker was outside, you drop it and depending on the size. And also convenience for us because sometimes we don't want it dropped just at home. It might be easier on our way to somewhere to pick it up and take it home with us. And for lots of packages that need to be signed for and we're not at home or we're not at the office or whatever destination it is, the kind of idea of lockers is helpful. And that's why you see the big e-commerce companies investing in them. That's great. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that. So let's turn to the idea of data to try to try to enable all these these new modes. It's a you know big theme in the podcast. What are you seeing in terms of the difference in data availability from traditional to the kind of newer forms and the shared? Is there an increase? Is there better information? There's certainly an increase, right? Because it's all of this is information driven. And I think we're in the state where we're trying to figure out what is the infrastructure. Well, how do we exchange information? Who gets what information and what information is needed? And so you'll see a lot of activity in setting up data standards and privacy guidelines. Recently released was the data interoperability principles that basically said for, and mostly led by government agencies saying, when we procure systems, the data has to be interoperable or when we uh, secure services or when we allow you to operate, then the data has to be interoperable. And uh, the goal is kind of unspoken goal is that all of this data has to work to make it easier for the user, both in terms of availability and seeing what they could use and all the way to payment. And on the back end of that is how does this data help us plan and respond better 
But it's very, very early on in terms of both standards and APIs and everything else. So I think we're going to go negotiate all of that along with kind of putting the brakes on some data that we shouldn't have access to, even as governments, right? And just understanding, respecting the privacy of the individuals and yet empowering the accessibility of these services. Yeah, I, I like the idea of not tracking exactly everywhere I go, but you know, our phone already does that. I think the cow's out of the barn on, on that one. You know, I, I love when I see people worried about being tracked or something like that. I'm like, but you carry, everyone's got a phone. I mean, your provider knows. There's pushback already on it, right? Like well, what Apple has done in this space. Of course, Apple still has that data, but whereas previously, whatever app you were doing was free to say, oh, I'm a game app and I have your location data, even if I have no real reason for it. And now we're saying, no, you can only get that. But again, all of this awareness of what is important, not just the phone, but credit cards have so much data about us, right? But that conversation that has to then start emerging about what is data that is allowed, companies could have, like GPDR in Europe has started that. And so I think we'll continue to have that conversation. I like the way Bianca Wiley puts it, that these are long-term issues that our commitment is to keep going back to have that conversation about what is it really that we need and what do we need to achieve. Yeah, I think everyone wants there to be useful data, but maybe not personalized. I mean, having data for everybody around you is what makes Waze work so well, the rerouting of people, because they've got enough people in the system to know what's going on, right? So you want generalized, right? Anonymized data, but not, I don't want it tracking where I'm going personally. You talked about getting to standards and it always sounds so wonky and kind of uninteresting, but if you don't have that, things are kind of a nightmare. And, you know, my work is with multinationals, companies, kind of working on their efforts to solve big environmental and social problems. And I just saw recently there was a partnership of big buyers of EVs, EV makers to basically ask for standards. I don't know if you saw this was like a week or two ago to say, hey, we need standards for charging, for paying for. So if we're going to build out this infrastructure, you don't really go the route of Tesla where you have your own charging station and every company has their own. That's just useless, right? I mean, that's just not very helpful. And we don't want to repeat what we've done with Android versus Mac and all the different plugs and you just, that's not going to work. It's like gas stations are all the same, right? You either get diesel or you get unleaded. We need that across all of these platforms. One of my earliest jobs ever was running an internet service provider back when everything was dial-up. And this was before HTTP and the web won the internet. There were a whole bunch of competing standards back then. And we settled on a particular set of protocols and layers. So the reason we're able to do this online is there's a set of agreed upon layers of how audio is transmitted and how video is transmitted and how my browser then interacts with whatever application layer you have. That's all starting to emerge or needs to emerge in the transportation space. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember that sound, the AOL sound when you were logging in. And I'm old enough to have my name at AOL.com. Like I was- Oh, there you go. Yeah, early. You remember all the uh, the CDs you would get? Like they send out more than I think any marketer in, in history. Yeah, our biggest problem was how to give send them a diskette that would configure the modem, right? Which wasn't automatic, right? Yeah, God, that's amazing thinking back now. So where are we getting the data now? Where, what are the kind of sources of data that are guiding how we roll out this mixed and shared mobility? That's a big question. Where are we getting the data? I think before we even say, where are we getting the data? The important thing to ask is, what do we need that data for? You can get it from, like I said, the phones, right? We could get it from phones. People could volunteer it. You could get it from micromobility rides or from TNC rides, right? So there's an availability of data because nearly everything has a GPS 
a telemetry kind of app along with six axis motion sensors, right? So we'd even know the position of the phone if we wanted to, right? And we can tell that people are walking or not. There's a whole wealth of data available or theoretically available in particular buckets. And the temptation is to want all of that data and kind of hoover it up. But particularly for the public good, you have to stop and say, what is it, the data that we really need? And what's the best way to get it? The invasive way is for me to just get it off your phone. But if I was running the transportation system, could I get this through counters, through vehicle counters or people counters that would not take video, but would just count that particular blob of pixels looks like it's walking and that one particular blob looks like it's on a on a bike and then have a sense of what's going on in the system. Again, it goes back to what is it that we're trying to do. There's a lot of talk of digital twins, right? Because it comes from manufacturing and the idea that you have a factory floor that then you can mirror and know exactly what's happening. And cities are way more complex than whatever largest factory you can imagine. And transportation systems are way more complex. So are people building these twins of a city? So the question is, is is the goal to build a digital twin? Is that what we really need? Because I can tell you, having worked in the Department of Transportation, the response cycles are not that way, right? You can't say, oh, I learned something that's going on here and I can immediately dispatch a crew to do something about it. They're not because we're not emergency services. So long, long answer to your question is there is data. The question we have, and I'll turn back to what Bianca Wiley likes to say, it's data minimization. What is the minimum amount of data we need based on what is it that we're trying to learn or achieve? So we've been talking a little bit about infrastructure, you know, EVs and kind of the big stuff, but how is infrastructure, you know, in and around cities being adapted to better suit the high occupancy vehicles? You know, we want more shared mobility. How's the infrastructure changing and vice versa? Do the need for buses, does it change the infrastructure? Let's split that up, right? So there's shared micromobility and then there's high volume bus public transportation. The proven way is to provide exclusive bus lanes and give buses priority at intersections. That works. If we start measuring the number of people we move versus the number of vehicles we move, then the answer is pretty easy, right? It's like, so prioritize those with high volume capacity. For the other end of the scale for micromobility and e-bikes and e-scooters, then the protected bike lane is the most useful thing. And we don't have to look very far, right? You look at the cities in Northern Europe or Copenhagen and Amsterdam and Mexico City and wherever else that we've built up really good bike infrastructure that works. What Paris is doing works, right? I think what we have yet to see, but it's starting to emerge is the idea of the mobility hubs being present and available and visible so that you know that there are way more options for you to be able to get around than just simply either the bus or my private car or maybe a bike share. Is it working better to block, like Amsterdam does this and increasingly we've got areas like in New York where they you know remove lanes. Is it better to just block off areas to be pedestrian and bike only versus try to get them all, get the bus, the bike, the walking, the cars in, in one place? In some areas that works because there's high volume of people and you give them the space, then it works, right? But to kind of, I I think there's a sense and you may not intend it, right? There's a sense in what your question of kind of siloing. Oh, these are pedestrian areas and that's bike areas and that's car areas. And that's not how people move, except for the way we built out our cities where you have these huge highways, which are just completely hostile to people. But that's not how people move. So what we need to do is to provide as much of access in our regular road infrastructure as we can. 
And what we're finding out is the more you provide for high volume capacity public transportation and light micromobility, the better traffic actually flows too. And so going back to your question of multimodality, we need the multimodality in infrastructure so that not everyone is trying to drive down the road with their two-ton vehicle just to get to a few blocks away. I love when transportation, when you, you say a two-ton vehicle, it's like clear where like the car is not the greatest thing in the world for carrying, you know, a 200 pound person. Well, it's great for some ways, like, you know, long, longer trips or right. really, it, it's, I'm not discounting. It's really, really great. And it's worked for our cities and our society. It's just that it's overly prioritized and we need to balance it out. Well, in some places, you know, like LA, you say we're just highways. You need, you have to have a car really you can't get around. And that has a big societal costs and household costs if there's only one option. So how should municipalities prioritize their spending in regards to public transportation and the infrastructure that's needed? Let's go back to what they mentioned. If you look at statistics or numbers that are gathered in cities, the biggest pile by any means is how fast vehicles are moving. There are counts of every intersection. There's, we know the average daily traffic on particular streets, whole ton of data on movement of vehicles. We need to shift that to look at also look at how are people moving? How many people are crossing in this intersection? How many people are walking on this sidewalk? How many people are biking? And by looking at those comparative numbers and then saying, how do we encourage more of that? Then we can have a better approach to managing the system. Classic, right? It's like what gets measured matters and what gets measured gets managed because we're only measuring one particular thing. That's what we're trying to manage. Turn to investment then goes, if you're measuring the right things, the things that you think matter, then that is in theory where your investment should go. So when I was in the Seattle Department of Transportation, we came up with the new mobility playbook. The frame of that playbook, it was really a strategy document was, one, we don't know what new technology is going to come through. This was in 2017 before there were electric kick scooters on the street, uh, shared kick scooters. But we do know the history, right? And so the point of view of the mobility playbook was first we decide what kind of city we want then technology has to adapt to it and that's all around what are the values the city should have what kind of life should people have what kind of prosperity are we able to bring in and then technology helps to bring that through versus what we've done in the last century and a half where we said that's the only technology for transportation and so we keep building it out there are both issues of the climate crisis and issues of equity that we, where we have to go and say, this is not working, we have to rethink it. So given everything we've talked about, just step back to your center, the Shared Use Mobility Center. What are you really trying to accomplish in this whole very complicated system? We want to shift our systems from being very auto-centric to kind of shared mobility-centric. We're not saying people shouldn't own cars or buy cars. By all means, they should. But not every trip has to be a car. Neither should you be compelled to have to make that $10,000 a year annual expense because there's no other option. We have a lot of, uh, in our media, right, the kind of these really interesting stories where someone posts a story about a guy who walks 25 miles a day to get to work and we all feel sorry about it and then we all contribute to buy him a new car and we feel great that we bought him a new car, we bought him a new expense. The question should be, why should anyone have to have to own a car to be able to get somewhere? They don't have to. That's the question we want. They, they can if they wanted to, but they shouldn't have to. So the work we're trying to do is to shift our auto-centric transportation systems to shared mobility 
so that it's better for the planet, it's better for our communities, and it's better for equity. That's a good closing point. But we asked one last question, which is, let's put on our you know seer hat, looking at the crystal ball. If you're looking out your window in 20 years, what should we expect to see? And what do you hope to see? I expect to see a much more walkable street. Cars, but not that many. Then a lot of people on micromobility in whatever form or lighter vehicles that are electric. And then really accessible and available public transportation everywhere you go. But primarily walking, small vehicles, large vehicles, and then private cars. And then maybe there are robots that are delivering stuff. <laughs> so. And autonomous small vehicles, right? Yep. That's great. That's a great vision. Thank you so much, Benji, for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrew. I want to thank Benji for taking the time to be with us on the show today and explaining many of the new advancements in the world of mobility. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to leave a review and make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. I'm Andrew Winston, and thanks again for listening to City Talks by Ford.